0: There was a show when I was a kid. It was called uh, I've Got a Secret, which actually is incorrect grammar. It should have been I Have a Secret. But it didn't matter. It was hosted by a guy named Gary Moore, and it was sponsored by Winston Cigarettes, which were a fairly new brand at the time and uh, quickly became America's favorite filtered cigarette. Because Winston tastes good like a cigarette should, uh, he would say, over and over again. Uh, They used to give cartons of Winston cigarettes to each contestant who came onto the show. I kid you not. A free carton of Winston cigarettes. uh, Host puffing away all the way during the show, offering guests cigarettes. Uh, One guy didn't take it. It's like a 96-year-old dude who was on the show in the 1950s, his secret that the panel had to guess was that he had witnessed the assassination of President Abraham Lincoln. And so (laughs) they had to guess his secret, right? It's pretty amazing. He uh, actually didn't remember the actual shooting. He just remembers this guy falling out of the balcony, onto the stage and breaking his leg, and was compassionate for the guy who broke his leg, John Wilkes Booth, the assassin. Um, but anyway, different people would come on. Like one time, uh, the people who had a secret were this couple from Wapakoneta, Ohio, Uh, Mr. and Mrs. Armstrong and their secret was their son that afternoon had just been selected as part of the brand new American astronaut program. And at the end of their little section of the show Gary Moore, the host, turns to Mr. and Mrs. Armstrong and says wouldn't it be amazing if your son was the first man to walk on the moon? Anyway, so Just so you get an idea of what this show is like, I've got a little clip with somebody that you probably don't don't know, but you should. Go ahead.
1: Will you tell our panel, please, what your name is and where you are from? I'm Pete Best, and I'm from West Derby in Lancashire. Peter Best, and he is from West Derby, Lancashire, England. Now, Peter, if you'll whisper your secret to me, we'll show it at the same time to our audience at home. Here we go. You mean you came all the way from England just to tell us, Sam? Oh, boy. Never <laughs> <laughs> had one of those days. Well, final, to help you classify Peter Best's secret, the clue concerns something he did, we'll start the questioning, please, with Bess Myers. Well, one thing you did, Peter, was avoid getting a haircut in recent days. Does this have anything to do with your secret? A little. Uh, could you be a new kind of uh, bug that we've uh, imported from England? I might be. Uh-huh. Uh, do you sing, by the way? No. No. Do you have anything to do with your predecessors, with the Beatles at all? Yes. Yeah. The answer to that is yes. $20 down, $60 to go. We go, please, to uh, Bill Callum. Well, the uh, the Beatles did or uh, do come from Lancaster, uh, Lanc Lancashire, Lancaster. Do they not? Yeah. Uh, mm-hmm. Do you have anything to do with the Beatles' hairdo? No, uh, no. Oh heck, I was hoping with their barber. I just <laughs> that blows. That blows my next five questions out uh, <laughs> Do you have? Uh, did you have anything personally to do with the Beatles? Yeah. Do you still? Do you still have anything to do with the last question? Vaguely. Uh, just socially. Oh, all right. So now we've got forty down and forty to go, and we go, please, to Betsy. Did there used to be five Beatles, Peter? Yeah. And you were oh. one. Peter. Oh! <laughs> <clears throat> Peter Best came all the way from England to tell us that two years ago he made a big career move. He left his job, which is not in itself unusual, except for one little thing. The job he had was as the drummer. Oh, my, Ringo. He was, he was Ringo's predecessor in the Beatles. And we have here a picture, which I'll turn to camera one, of the Beatles when Peter Best, not Ringo star, was the drummer for the Beatles. And reading from left to right, there is John Lennon and George Harrison and Paul McCartney, isn't it? And our own Peter Best. You see him there, but he hasn't changed a bit. Now, Peter, how long were you with the Beatles? I was with them two and a half years. That was before they had the—that before they had the hairdos, yeah, right? That was it. Now, now I'm going to say the word then I'm sure it's on everyone's lips. Why did you leave the Beatles? <laughs> well, at that time I, you know, thought I'd like to start a group of my own. Yes. And I thought that uh, at that time also that they weren't going to go as big as what they are now. They <laughs> figured this was an act of no future, and so I might as well pull out and start an act of his own. So. <laughs> Well, don't
0: worry, no one's prepping. Yeah, Yeah, there's so many musicians in here. Wouldn't you just hate that? I mean, wouldn't you just hate that your band blows up as soon as you leave it? And uh, that was the secret, obviously. So, um, yeah. Anyway, interesting to note um, that uh, with all the smoking uh, of cigarettes going on in the show, actually, I think Gary Moore probably, I think he died of lung cancer, and as did a couple other people on the show. (laughs) Uh, So, you know, warning, I guess. Isn't that weird? It's just so weird to see cigarettes on TV's commercials. I mean, and then it's weird uh, that people would actually smoke on the air. But um, anyway, there were some great moments in the show. Now, obviously, when the show was over, the contestants' secrets were over as well. I mean, secrets are fragile things, are they not? We usually have a hard time keeping them, especially if it's good news. You know, like you find out the new young married couple uh, are expecting a baby and they don't want you to tell anybody, but they've told you because you're really close and so you have a hard time not telling people that you've got a secret. Secrets are difficult things. Um, We can look really stupid trying to keep them sometimes. Now, when it comes to our actual lives, as opposed to the lives of actors in, uh, in the movies or game shows on, on television, there are those things, obviously, that we should not keep a secret, and there are those things that we ought to keep secrets. Now, one of those things that we should not keep a secret is our relationship with Jesus, which, ironically, is the thing that we're probably most tempted to keep a secret most of the time. You know, you're in a conversation with somebody at work or somebody at school, and the whole idea of religion comes up, and you know you have something to say, but you keep it in because you're afraid of the reaction you're going to get when you tell them that you're a Jesus freak. And then, by the same token, it's, it's all irony, there are things that we ought to keep secrets which we do not. And it's those kinds of things I want to talk about tonight. The things that we ought to keep secrets, but the things that we do not. The things that we ought to keep secret just because Jesus asks us to keep them a secret. In uh, Matthew chapter 6, Jesus goes into a discourse on the kinds of things he would like his followers to. To keep secret. And this is all done in the imperative tense. Like, it is a command to keep secret. All right? We've got to explore it. Because when Jesus gives you a direct command, you kind of want to pay attention. Starting in verse 1, Jesus says, Take care. In other words, think about this. Plan this. Be careful about this. Take some time so that you can obey what I'm about to say to you. Don't do your good deeds publicly to be admired, because then you will lose the reward from your Father in heaven. When you give a gift to someone in need, don't shout about it as the hypocrites do, blowing trumpets in the synagogues and the streets to call attention to their acts of charity. I assure you, they have received all the reward they will ever get. But when you give to someone, don't tell your left hand what your right hand is doing. Give your gifts in secret, and your Father, who knows all secrets, will reward you. It's always good, I think, when you read something that was written in the first century to go back and see what was Jesus talking about in the first century this is really important little Bible study technique that I encourage all of you to do in your own private Bible study what was Jesus talking about if you do a little digging, a little background a little historical, cultural kind of uh, study you will find that actually that's what happened in the day People knew in the Jewish world that they were supposed to give to the poor. The Old Testament is replete with God's commands to take care of those who were in need and the poor. And so they did. But what they uh, did was to announce it. It was to literally use trumpets when they were about to commit a great act of charity. It was literally to cry out about it, or hire people to cry out for you, to let the public know that you are about to obey God and do the things that he asked you to do. They were obviously into making a big display, but of course we progress far beyond that today. Not, right? Why is it that every year we know... How much Bill Gates gives to charity? Why is it that on the top of every bottle of salad dressing from the Paul Newman nonprofit deal, we're told? How much money has been given to charity as a result of people buying those products? Now, here's something you probably didn't know, is that Paul Newman didn't want that information to get out. He'd been making salad dressing after a successful acting career, just as gifts for people at Christmas time, And the thing kind of took off, got a life of its own, and he decided, you know, I've already got all the money I need. I'm just going to start giving all the profits to charity. And it was his board of directors, against his will, that forced the company to begin putting that kind of information on the tops of the salad bottles, the salad dressing bottles, to try and gain more sales so that they could give more money away. I mean, it makes logical sense until you put it up against the words of Jesus. So Paul Newman had a better idea of how to give to the poor and the needy than his board of directors did. Why is it that college scholarships normally have someone's name attached to them? Why is that? Why are universities filled with brass plaques with the name of the person who gave most of the money so that building could be erected. And it's not just universities, but it's museums and libraries and I'm afraid churches as well. Those people, Jesus said, have received their rewards in full. Their names on the plaque on the building. Now, Jesus goes a step further than this. As he talks about the people that were doing this kind of parading in his own time, he calls them hypocrites. A hypocrite was what they used to call the actors of Greco-Roman theater. A hypocrite is is, is an actor. It's somebody who wears a mask. It's someone who puts on a part. It's someone who is falsely speaking, not from his own thoughts or his own hearts or his own motives, but doing the script of something that has been written for him or for her. Anybody here ever go to the movies? You see a lot of people making a lot of money playing people they are not. I always wondered, you know, you have these great, iconic American figures like, like Jimmy Stewart, who always played the good guy. Was he really a good guy? Really? I mean, everybody says, I would love to have known Jimmy Stewart. Well, maybe he would. Maybe he really was a great guy. Maybe he was a cad. I don't know. And these people who pretend every year, they, they have awards for the best pretenders of them all, called the Academy Awards. Well, God has an award for people who pretend when it comes to uh, being spiritual, and that award is nothing. Nada. Zip. Yep, you pretend to be a holy person by giving to the poor in order to get attention from others, and that is all you get. And as John Ortbrook said, I know I'm supposed to be humble, but what if nobody notices? <laughs> Boy, have I felt that way sometimes. Jesus advises not even to praise yourself for giving. Like, what is that? Don't let your left hand know what your right hand is doing business. I was talking to some folks actually just before the service uh, as we were getting ready and doing a little bit of prayer. And I said, you know, the best things I've ever done, I do not remember. It's the weirdest deal. I, I had one time, this one kid comes up to me and he goes, Mike, I just want to say thank you so much for, uh, for praying with me to accept Jesus. I didn't remember the kid's name. I didn't know his face. And that kind of thing has happened over and over again over my life. And the way I finally put it together was, hmm, maybe if I don't plan it out to do a good deed, and it just kind of happens as a result of, you know, following Jesus, the next thing to do, then I wouldn't remember because it wasn't me in the first place. Does that make sense? I don't know how else to... Do the don't let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, or what he said, vice versa, unless you willfully decide, you know, whatever I do, I am not going to pat myself on the back for doing good things that ought to be done. Here's the deal, is when you do something in secret, there's only two beings in the entire universe who know that it's been done besides the person on the receiving end. And that is you and the Lord. Nobody else knows. Nobody else knows. And as I think about that, I'm going, You know, that is actually a wonderful way to do it. Because this is what happens. If just you and Jesus know about it, you can kind of smile about it with each other. Like when you pray on your own, you can go, Hey, Jesus, remember the look on that person's face when they opened up that envelope and they found all that money in there? Remember that? One time I, I came to my office at Corona Press, and um, I had been using this uh, Mac Plus computer It was like 1990-something. But my computer was, you know, it seemed like from the 80s. And it had a whole four megs of RAM and a 20-meg hard drive. had a dot matrix printer with the sprockets in the side, right? That was my seminary computer. And one day, I came... To my office, and there sitting in a box in front of my office door was this brand new iMac. A kind of bubble-shaped one, you know, with a grape or strawberry-colored panel on it that, you know, it was the, like the latest, coolest, plug it in, get online, and do your computer stuff. It was amazing. I didn't know who gave it. So... The only person that I could thank was God. So the gift given in secret forced me into a relationship with God. When God, you see my need. A need I really didn't even know that I had. This is going to be so much better, not just for me, but for my whole family and my kids who are going through school. And they require more computer stuff. This is amazing. Thank you. And so the gift given in secret, I didn't have my eyes on anybody else around I had my eyes focused on how God was taking care of me. And if you've received a gift like that, you know what I'm talking about. Because you're looking around for some of the things, some flesh and blood person you can go up and put your arms around and hug and you can try and pay them back so that you don't feel as dumb. So that you don't feel as much of a loser. And that kind of negates the whole thing. Because it takes then my eyes off of my relationship with Jesus onto how cool this other person is and how much I would wish I could be that person and how much I need to pay him back. So you see when you give in secret, it works both for the giver and the receiver in that they get a reward. What is the reward Jesus is talking about? Reward pops up a couple times already. What's the reward he's talking about? I think the reward is a deeper and more intimate relationship with himself. We sing these songs, we talk about the relationship with Jesus. And some of you are not feeling very close to Christ as Christmas is over and the new year approaches. I wonder if you started doing the things that Jesus commanded like giving in secret I wonder could that something be the beginning of a closer relationship where just you and Jesus have something to smile about. Nobody else in the entire cosmos knows that it was you and Jesus. Now, does this mean that we should never give in public? I don't think so. Because, you know, even in Jesus' time, you had to go up and drop the money in the box in the synagogue. What are you going to do here at Scum? Like you got those two Kentucky Fried Chicken buckets down there on that little stage. You're going to kind of wad up your check or your your cash, and then you're going to walk over and then kind of hide the bucket and then try and drop it in without anybody seeing you. Hopefully you make it. I mean, how are you going to give a check? I mean, it's got to go through certain avenues here. I mean, we, we, we try to be responsible with the money that comes in. And so, you know, people will know. I mean, they'll take your check, they'll write it down, they'll send you a receipt at the end, or like in January, so that you can do your whole tax thing to get a tax deduction that the government so generously gives us still, right, uh, for offering things. So it's, I mean, you really can't be totally private sometimes in terms of your giving, so I think what Jesus is talking about is there is something in here. Something humble. Something between you and him that you just you just do it. Without making a big fanfare about it. I mean, so what? So what if the people who are counting the money know? Just so you know, I have no idea who gives what here. I just don't. Um... I've made it a practice for 12 and a half years not to know how much people give. I mean, it's better that way. you know That way, it doesn't get in the way of me being your pastor. Whether you get five dollars or nothing or 5,000, I don't it doesn't matter. But there are people who have to know, and it's OK. It's really about what's going on inside of us, in terms of our giving. Jesus is calling us to be more secretive about our giving. It's about motives. Sometimes it's the right thing to do to give away money in public. You're sitting there talking to somebody and they, they talk about a need. And, you know, I mean, you're not going to see them again. You just reach in your pocket and you pull out a 20 and you hand it to them and say, here, take this. Jesus doesn't stop there. Let's go on. Verse 5. And now about prayer. When you pray, don't be like the hypocrites who love to pray publicly on the street corners and in the synagogues where everyone can see them. I assure you, that is all the reward they will ever get. But when you pray, go away by yourself. Shut the door behind you and pray to your father secretly, and then your father who knows all secrets will reward you. There he goes again, talking about reward. Tim Keller tells a story about two men who were hired to fold paper for 12 hours. Maybe it was some kind of letter writing deal, right? And they had to fold and stuff envelopes. Doesn't matter. 12 hours of folding paper nonstop. After two or three hours, one of the guys just screamed, I can't take this anymore. Like, this is drudgery. I can't do this. And he just gets up and walks out of the room. Other guy, happily full, for 12 hours, saying, this is the greatest day of my entire life. Here's the reason. The first guy is working for minimum wage. The second guy is promised a million dollars at the end of the 12 hours. Rewards do make a difference. They do. I used to think about this passage that it was about approval addiction. You know, that we, we, we shouldn't have to worry about getting approval from people. But Jesus says, no, it's about reward. Because you will work for a reward, the one that you desire. And if you desire reward from people, then you'll get that. But if you desire a word from God, then that's what you'll get. And the question is, what is worth more to us? Relationship with people? Adoration from people? Or relationship with God and praise from God? Reward from the men and women that you work with or go to church with? Or reward? from your heavenly Father. Jesus wants us to have a place of prayer. It appears to me me from this passage. The whole earth is the Lord's and everything in it. We can pray anywhere anytime but it seems to me that Jesus has something special in mind here but when you pray go away by yourself shut the door behind you and pray to your father secretly the original Greek here talks about going to your inner room Now, here's where historical cultural background makes a difference. Because most of the people Jesus was talking to in the first century didn't have an inner room in their house. They were poor people. They were this very, very thin crust of rich people, and then there was no middle class, and or if there was a middle class, it was extremely, extremely small, and this huge, giant... Amount of poor people. You know, they had a one room. Two rooms at the most. There was no inner room. So what's Jesus talking about? I think he's using metaphor here. He's saying, when you pray, go to a private place. Not on the street corner where everybody can hear you. But to a private place. It is said that uh, John and Charles Wesley's mother. John and Charles Wesley's were the... uh, two brothers who caused a revival that swept over England and America uh, back in the late 1700s. The whole Wesleyan movement, uh, the Methodist church came out of that revival. But they grew up with ten other brothers and sisters. There were like twelve kids in the Wesley household. Imagine being the mother of twelve children. Where would you find a moment of Peace. Where would you find a place where there was not a kid peeing or pooping or puking? So what Mother Wesley taught her children was that when she sat down on a chair in the kitchen and took her apron and threw it over the top of her head, it was Mommy's time for a prayer with God and don't bother her for a few minutes. That was her private place. That's what Jesus is talking about. Literally go to your inner room. It's about the privacy of the heart. Why does Jesus insist on this? I think one reason he insists on the privacy of the heart is because he wants our prayers to be genuine. Hypocrites don't pray in secret. Prayers that are pretense require an audience. I remember one guy at SCUM, we had a confession. He really wanted to get together with me to confess something. I said, okay, fine. So we get together for, I don't know, lunch or coffee or something, and he spills his heart out. He goes, Mike. He goes, you know, at SCUM, I have been... Totally faking it. I go, what do you mean? He says, there's this girl. She is so spiritual. She is so beautiful. And I really want to impress her. Because I really like her and want to ask her out. And so during praise and worship, I'm just totally like faking it. Like, have my hands open. I have my eyes closed. I pretend like I'm praying really hard. And he goes, it's just becoming a burden. And I had to tell you. I said, okay, you're forgiven. Don't do that anymore. (laughs) What am I supposed to say? Well, here's the rest of the story. He ends up dating this girl. They get married. But shortly after the wedding, his true nature begins to emerge. He really isn 't that concerned about following Jesus. He is more concerned about getting high, about getting drunk about in fact here 's the irony I think he his first i don't know time whether it was ecstasy or whatever it was he was given drugs at the nightclub called the church. If that doesn't scare you, I don't know what does. Eventually, their marriage failed. And I'm thinking, what if he had begun to practice the discipline of secrecy? What if he had taken Jesus' commands to heart and actually stopped with the show? Here's the reason we don't really want to be in secret with God. It's because it scares the crap out of us. Who can stand in his presence, the scriptures say? Our dark places are exposed by light with no shadow. It bends around corners. The light of God is so intense and so revealing that you are laid bare before the eyes of Him to whom you must give an account for your life. Why wouldn't you go into the secret place? It's because it's scary as hell. Because you're hell will be exposed. I think it would revolutionize the lives of most people at Scum if we decided at this point for the new year to give 30 minutes a day to secret prayer with God. 30 minutes a day. That's it. Where you take your apron and throw it over your head, whatever... You've got to do. You go around the corner, outside the office, you take your lunch break, or you lie in your bed before you go to sleep, staring at the ceiling, and just let it all come out into the open. How you're doing. Forgotten and hidden things, standing naked and open before the Father of lights in that place. I think it would revolutionize not only our individual lives, but our corporate lives as well. And here's, this is an important deal. We're going to start a prayer and worship ministry, for lack of a better word. A prayer and worship time. I mean, that's going to be the purpose, is prayer, worship, listening to God, talking back to Him, praying for others. Asking that his gifts be given to those who are in need. And if there's any place that hypocrisy can rear its ugly head its scum, it's gonna be in that venue. I've seen it. I've participated in it. I was in a charismatic church for eight years. I, I kind of know the ropes. And I can tell you that in some ways, in a desire, a twisted desire to be closer to God, I would appear as spiritual as possible to the point of and including when the evangelist or the apostle or the pastor would come by and lay his hand upon my head, I would willfully pretend to be slain in the spirit and fall down. My motives were kind of at the core good in that I wanted to be as open to God as possible. But you know, everybody's watching, and you got this guy from out of town. He's supposed to be full of the Holy Spirit power, and he's got his hands on you. You don't make him feel bad by not falling down. And so you just kind of just fake it. You become a hypocrite right there in Church. And we can't let that happen here. And one of the ways we're going to prevent that from happening in a corporate setting is for us to begin to seek God privately, in secret, where nobody else sees. Sometimes it's good to have a secret. Secrets of prayer. Secrets of good works. Now, does this mean that we should never pray in public. Well, if it does, then Jesus is in trouble with his own teaching. Because obviously, Jesus not only prayed in public, but he taught his disciples in public how to pray. When you pray, this is how you should pray. Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, etc., etc. So Jesus obviously doesn't mean we should never pray in public. Here's my rule of thumb. My rule of thumb is this. Long prayers in private, short prayers in public. Long prayers in private, short prayers in public. If you are out to eat with me, you know I don't pray more than a couple sentences before we eat. And it isn't just because I'm a glutton. Although sometimes that kind of helps, you know. So, but you seriously, seriously. And what it would be like if we were at Pete's Greek Town after church one night, and some dude or some girl gets up, stands up, whole long table of 50 people, and spreads out her arms and says, oh, Heavenly Father, thank you for this wonderful Mediterranean food that we are about to eat. Said the shepherd boy to the little lamb, you'll become a hero. Anyway, not proper. Long prayers in private, short prayers in public. Now, Jesus actually goes on in this chapter, and I'm not going to go there, to talk about Being secret about fasting and things like that. And so he emphasizes a distinction between public and private piety. Public and private piety. Here's a rule of thumb from A.B. Bruce Show when tempted to hide. And hide when tempted to show. Show when tempted to hide, and hide when tempted to show. Being a hypocrite robs us of certain things. We don't want to be hypocrites. Being a hypocrite robs us of reality. We substitute reputation for character. We substitute mere words for true prayer. We substitute money for real devotion to God. It puts us in this fantasy world where we're actually not in reality. Have you ever known someone who wasn't kind of honest about what's really going on in their hearts or their lives? Where they put on this religious facade and then all of a sudden something happens like their life blows up or falls apart or they do something you never imagined they could do because they never shared that with you. And you're going, wait a minute. Like, was it all a show? Was our friendship really real? Because I never thought you were capable of that thing and you were doing that thing all along without no, without anybody else knowing. Being a hypocrite robs us of the ability to be real not only with God, not only with others, but even with ourselves. Being a hypocrite also robs us of rewards. Instead of eternal praise from God, instead of a relationship with the one who created us, instead of having that deep, meaningful existence with the one who holds our lives in his hands, we get an attaboy or an attagirl from the people we know. Do you guys remember the Superman movie back when, it was a long time ago, but they have a Kal-El, I'm kind of a comic book science fiction nerd, if you didn't know that yet, I really do fit in here well. And anyway, on on the way out of the planet Krypton, there are these video kind of tapes that have been programmed inside of Kal-El's little spaceship. And it's his father, JorEl, talking to him the whole way, all the way to the planet Earth, and then it's kind of forgotten. And then at some point, maybe around when he was eighteen years old, this whole thing reawakens, and the Fortress of Solitude appears, and all of a sudden, these tapes of his father speaking to him appear again. Just sent up chills all through my body. Because I kept thinking about, that's what it's like to be in the presence of my heavenly Father. He tells me secrets. He tells me about myself. He tells me why I was created. He tells me my special powers. He tells me all these things that I was made for that I would never know if I didn't have that secret fortress of solitude with him. You trade all of that for a pat on the back. at a girl. at a boy. Hypocrisy robs us of rewards, and it robs us of influence. Because we become negative role models as opposed to positive role models. Think about all the Christian hypocrites you've read about or looked at on TV or seen portrayed in the movies. You're going, I don't want to be like those people. Those are the reasons that I don't even want to go to church. Thank God I found a place like scum of the earth where you can be honest about your darkness. I'm not making this up. This is what people tell me. But I'm saying we do not, as scum of the earth, want to become negative role models by becoming hypocrites when the whole prayer and worship thing. We want that to be real. What is hypocrisy? What is it not? Let me do that first. What is hypocrisy not? It is not someone's inability to reach her goal in following God. You know what? You mess up in life trying to follow Jesus, that doesn't mean you're a hypocrite. If you want to walk the walk and not just talk the talk, and then you screw up and you don't walk the walk, it doesn't mean you're a hypocrite. A person who screws up as a Christian is not necessarily a hypocrite. I mean, we are the church for losers. If you don't qualify to be in another church, you're qualified to be in this one. Because last I checked, the reason people become Christians is because they're full of sin and need a Savior. Right? So if you screw up in your Christian life, welcome to our company. Let's just be honest about it. Let's walk in the light with each other, as he is in the light. If we walk in the light, then we have fellowship with one another, because we're all being real. What is hypocrisy? This is what hypocrisy is. Next slide. Hypocrisy is a person, a hypocrite is a person who pretends that he or she doesn't screw up. You're an actor. You pretend like the Christian life is something you can do all by yourself. That you never fail. Or if you do fail, you never talk about it. Or you're a hypocrite if you do the right things for the wrong reasons, like you want to appear spiritual. What's the antidote to being a hypocrite? I know, this shouldn't come as a surprise. Secrecy. The antidote to becoming a hypocrite is to practice secrecy. Don't let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. Do good things for people and never tell anybody else. As a matter of fact, forget about them. Forget that you've even done them, if possible. Give in secrecy. And pray in secret. Have that private inner room inside of your heart where you go to talk to Jesus. And you see, whether or not, 12 months from now, that your reward isn't already upon you. Where at the end of 2012 you felt a little bit distant from God. At the end of 2013, you feel so close. I could even say in love with Jesus. Where sometimes in your private place, as you think about all that God has done for you and all that you have between you, tears come to your eyes, tears of gratitude. For the grace that's been poured upon you. Because you're so unworthy and yet he's done so much for you. It will happen. Trust me. Let's pray. Lord God, I pray for this church. I pray that you give us the grace to seek you in the private place where nobody else knows. I pray, Lord, that our relationship with you becomes the reward that we've always sought, never knew we wanted. Lord, give the scum of the earth the discipline of secrecy. In Jesus' name I pray this. Amen.